0: Today on Building in Faith with Pastor Ed Jones. Building in Faith.
1: Here's several things. Number one, if you ask in faith, now that doesn't mean you hype yourself up to believe that you're going to get something, doesn't mean you just get positive enough. He's going to give it to me. He's going to give it to me. He's going to give it to me. God, no. It's not that. Faith is this whole relationship with God, this trust, this reliance on his character, on who he is. So when it says you ask in faith, you're living in faithfulness.
0: Reaching up high with arms open wide, we see You're changing our lives Today, Pastor Ed will be teaching through a text that is extremely popular in church these days. This scripture is constantly being taken out of context and abused at the pulpit as well. When Jesus said, whenever you ask in my name, my Father will give it to you, he was speaking of whenever you ask according to his character and will. When we pray in faith according to the Lord's will, that's when the Father will give us the answer to our prayers. Now here's Pastor Ed with today's edition of Building in Faith.
1: James is speaking to us and tells us that those inner desires can be means of conflict. Whatever that desire may be, Uh, we need to have discipline in our lives. You don't do everything you desire to do, and you don't have everything you want to have. And so what's happening is James looks at the pulse and says, ah, here's the problem. Those inner desires. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you, as alien and strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What he's saying is that will war against your soul. It will do damage to you spiritually. When you have desires that you haven't laid at the cross and asked God to sanctify it and ask him if if it's his will and you haven't done that and these desires rule and reign in your life and bring you into conflict with others, they work destructively against your spirituality. Get into a good church fight, and I'll tell you, you have a hard time praying. Get into a conflict with your brothers and sisters, and you could come with your gift to the altar, and be assured that God is looking for you to go back and reconcile with that person. I wrote down, when we can be like an armed camp within, ready at a moment's notice to declare a war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which our hearts are. In which we have set our hearts, we become a fight ready to happen. See that? Fight ready. Now, picture what's happening in the pews. Look at the text. You want something, but you don't get it. Maybe it's position, power, prestige, whatever. You kill and covet. Murder in the pews. Mm. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. They're not gonna get what they want. They're going about it the wrong way what does he mean when he says kill? I don't know if uh, someone was stabbed in church. I know it did happen with Cain and Abel that there was jealousy and envy and there was the first murder was over a religious service where God accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's offering. But I, I think it's more a metaphor. I believe it's referring to what Jesus said. If we have murder or anger in our heart, it's like murder. He said, take the commandment, thou shalt not kill. If you have anger in your heart, God sees it as though you had committed murder. First John 3.15 bears this out. It says this, anyone who hates as another Christian is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. It will be destructive in your relationship with others and destructive in your relationship with God. It will work havoc. The language that James uses is a language of war. Why? Because church conflicts can be just as destructive as war. War leaves homes devastated. It Destroys families. It destroys communities. How many church splits have separated family members and they no longer walk in harmony with each other? How many church conflicts have so isolated people that they have no relationship with each other? Maybe at one time they were friends. But because of what has happened in the church, this invisible wall goes up How many people no longer serve God because in the church they were hurt and wounded and broken? Elizabeth George, on her Bible study notes on James, talks about weapons and strategies used in church fights. Here's just... A list of some of the things that she says. There's what they call the missile-attacking church members. Long range, you know. They just gossip or say something at a distance. There's the guerrilla tactics. They ambush you unsuspectingly, maybe in the foyer. <laughs> There's the snipers and the terrorist. No one is immune from being hurt by that sniper or the terrorist or mines, ensuring that others will fail in their efforts to serve God. They set minds there so that that person will not succeed. And then there are the espionage, using friendships to get potentially damaging information about others. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more so I can pray and share it with the prayer chain. (laughs) Then there's the cold war, freezing out an opponent by withdrawing or refusing to talk to him or her, the cold shoulder. Then there's a nuclear attack, being willing to sacrifice the church if the goals of my group are not met. Wow. James calls it war in the church. Uh, What happens in this context, when there's war in the church, when our desire gives reign to our actions, Christians will be at odds with God. Look at the text. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but I think what James is saying, you do not have because you do not ask God. In the first case, they're going to ask God something, and they decide, you know, I can't ask God that. That's selfish. That's wrong. Or maybe because they're at war with one another and they're not living right, their prayer life is really hindered and it's difficult to pray. And they sense that blockage between them and God. And so James looks at one group and he says, "Uh, you have not because you ask not. And then there's some others with some smiles and smirks on the other side. Wait a minute, we've been praying about that. He says, well, you over there. He said... "Um, In the text, when you ask, you receive not because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There are those who will take the wrong attitude. They'll take carnal desires. They'll take selfish ambition and they'll take it into the prayer room and they'll turn it into a prayer. And God doesn't hear that type of prayer. When we pray with wrong motives, God's not going to answer that prayer. When we pray with selfish motives, God's not going to answer that prayer. In chapter 3, it gives us an idea of James chapter 3 in verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. And then in verse 16, it says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition. What James is saying is, listen. Leave things in God's hands. I gotta do something about this. I gotta straighten this out. I don't. Isn't he the head of the church? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he hear? James is telling us that we create all sorts of conflicts within the body of Christ when. We go about fulfilling our desires, our motives. We're going to do it our way. I did it my way. That's what Frank Sinatra sang. Maybe that worked for Frank Sinatra in the world, but we're not in the world. We're in the church, and we can't sing I did it my way. We have to sing I did it his way. Our prayers can be defiled by self-centered prayers. By worldliness in in that holy relationship with God, we can turn the highest endeavors of prayer into selfishness. Now, uh, let me just get off the track for a moment. How many are teaching a theology that reflects what James speaks against? They call it a positive confession. You know, sort of blab it, grab it. That type of thing. God, anything I want, I'm going to... Cl- Listen, God doesn't answer those type of prayers that are motivated selfishly for the wrong reason and wrong purpose. You've got to check your heart. The text says, spend upon your own pleasures. At verse 3, 3b, spend what you get on your own pleasures. That's just like the prodigal son. The prodigal son says that he went to the far country and he spent on himself. He spent on his own pleasures. So if we go to God and all we're asking is for things for ourselves, to spend it on our pleasures with wrong motives, wrong attitudes, God's not gonna respond to that type of prayer. Now, what type of prayer does he respond to? Well, here's several things. Number one, if you ask in faith, Now, that doesn't mean you hype yourself up to believe that you're going to get something. It doesn't mean you just get positive enough. He's going to give it to me. He's going to give it to me. He's going to give it to me. God, no. It's not that. Faith is this whole relationship with God, this trust, this reliance on his character, on who he is. So when it says you ask in faith, you're living in faithfulness. Then it says asking in his name. Number two, 1624, ask in Jesus' name. What does it mean to ask in his name? Well, you're doing it for his sake. You're doing it for his glory. You're doing it for his honor. It's a prayer that Jesus would pray. It's something that Jesus, well, it would be something that would honor him. And then in First John 5, 14, ask anything according to his will. God, this is your will. This is your mind. This is what you would want in this circumstance. And then in 1 Peter 3, 7, we're to be in right relationship with others. And I think about the context of this verse, is husbands and wives. It says, husbands, your prayers will be hindered if you don't have a right relationship with your wife. And it goes beyond that in its application to having a right relationship with others. And then the fifth, we're Not to expect answers to prayer if we have unconfessed sin. If we harbor sin in our heart, things that are wrong. We can't expect God to respond in those situations. So what James is saying is that we will be at odds with God. Either we won't pray, or when we do pray, we'll pray with the wrong motives. In either case, there are no answers coming. And so a church is set up for fighting as church is set up for conflict, when we give rein to our personal desires and don't die to self, don't die to our own will. But there's something else in this text as well. When worldliness dominates our lives, worship will turn to war. Not only when our evil desires, dominate our lives, can worship turn to war, when we come in and we're giving rein to our desires, instead of letting God put the desires in our heart, instead of letting God work his will into our lives, when we put our own desires and we're going to go after what we want. That's the way the world thinks. And when we take on the attitude of worldliness, in verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? What is he talking about? Does it mean that you love the Hudson River sailing along on a boat? Or you enjoy nature? Or is it No, no. He's referring to the world system. The way the world does things. The way the world advances itself. In the world, to get ahead of the other guy, you step on the guy around you, and you use people as a platform to get what you want. In the world, it's me first and others, well, somewhere down the line. He's saying you don't adopt. The world system. In chapter 3, he's carrying on the thoughts. James is carrying on uh, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. He's carrying on the philosophy of the world and the philosophy of the kingdom. The philosophy of the world will create all sorts of disorder within the body of Christ. And what James is saying here's worldliness. It's not so much, and it could be, but not so much the music that you're listening to or. Maybe the length of your hair or uh, some other things. Not that that couldn't be, but what James is really looking at in worldly instances is saying, how do you handle yourself in the church of God? How do you handle yourself in the body of Christ? Are you using those weapons, those missiles of gossip? Are you dividing? Are you creating havoc in the church? Then you're a worldly Christian, you're bringing in the system of the world, and as you look at the text, we will become enemies of God. The text is clear in verse 4 Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. To be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. Think about that. God is saying, You can't love God and you can't love the world at the same time. The world system, you can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Uh, Do you ever? Were you ever in that precarious circumstance where someone said, if you're his friend, you won't be my friend. Or if you're her friend, you can't be my friend. Well, God is saying, if you're the friend of the world, you're not my friend. You're not like Abraham. God wants our exclusive loyalty. God wants our heart, 100%. He wants all of us, not part of us. Jeremiah 3.20 says it this way. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation where a spouse finds out that their mate was unfaithful to them. It can be devastating and painful. And God looks at the church and he looks at those who are supposed to serve him and he says, when you take on the attitude of the world, you have committed adultery. When you've taken on the attitude of the world on how you're to get ahead, how you're to promote yourself, how do you get your ends, your means, how do you get what you want, and you take the world's way of doing things, then you have actually committed adultery. That's worldliness. And the Bible text says in verse 5 that God is a jealous God. Now, I've used the New Living Translation because it's the clearest. The NIV, I think, obscures the text meaning. In verse 5, what do you think the Scripture means when they say, that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed within us, jealously longs for us to be faithful. Now, James is not quoting a particular verse, he's quoting a theme of Scripture that God is a jealous God. See, God won't share you with anyone, you're a bride prepared for Him. And he doesn't want us to defiling, defiling ourselves with the world system. He wants us to love him exclusively. And so God is a jealous God. There's a good jealousy when, you know, he wants to protect his bride, his wife. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, it says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You're courting disaster when you embrace the spirit of the world. What's God's solution? Listen to what the text says. It's so beautiful. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Stop right there. Drop all the way down the verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Remember the context of our book. He's speaking to those who want to be teachers, those who want to be leaders in the church, and he's saying, wait a minute, let God be the one. Well, will do it the right way. I'll do it my way. I'll get the connections. Oh, wait a minute. Don't you believe that God is big enough to open doors, close doors, lift up and and use your... Don't you think that? You could simply trust him. He never failed anybody. He won't fail you. And so the conflict that this early church was having was causing wars and strife and all sorts of things. I tell you, if you live long enough and you walk faithfully with God, you always see God do the right thing. He goes on, and this is a curious verse. You have to understand what it's saying here. What's God's remedy? Verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What it's saying at this moment is God will give you the grace to overcome your faults, your failures, the desires that rage within you, those ambitions. God will give you grace to overcome all of those things, if you come to him and you trust in him, he'll do something inside of you that you can't do in yourself. And so James is saying, he gives more grace. That's the type of God we have. The battle's there and you're struggling and you're fighting. And God said, wait, 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 wait. Just trust me. Just put your hand in my hand. He gives more grace to the humble. Let God, let God make a way where there is no way. Let God do what you cannot do. Uh, let God be your PR representative. He won't fail. I like the passage in Scripture in, in the Gospel of John one sixteen: For his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Remember the old hymn? It says, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multiply trials, He multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary. Known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth. Again, at that moment, when those desires rise up within our old nature, some goal was blocked, Some plan was hindered. Some desire was stifled. We don't go and plot and plan and strategize and say, Oh, I'm going to shoot a missile here, throw a hand grenade over there, and a terror attack over here. I'm going to fight my... No, no. We bow our knee, yield our heart, and say, God... You know, you see, you hear. And God always responds to the humble. He, what does he do? He lifts them up. I'd rather have God lift me up than for me to lift myself up any old day. Amen? What does it profit,
0: my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? These words from the book of James could lead one to believe that we must earn our salvation by good works. Pastor Ed will tackle this difficult subject and more as he teaches through the book of James. We'll learn that works are the result of faith, not the other way around. Although building in faith is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If not, we'd like to invite you to join us at Faith Assembly for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. or Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to buildinginfaithradio.com and follow the link to Faith Assembly. Or feel free to give us a call at 845-462-5955. That's 845-462-5955. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Building in Faith with Dr. Edward Jones. Please join us next time as Pastor Ed continues teaching through his series, Through the Book of James, right here on Building in Faith.